everyone, this is Chet Gray again with Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have a special guest in store for today. Um, if any of you guys watch the Sportsman's channel and have seen the Elk Camp TV, you guys know who Steve Chappell is. He's a really well-known guide here in Arizona, uh, concentrates mostly on all the elk in uh, the prime units. But he takes people on rifle and archery during um, the rut hunts as well as the late season hunts. Uh, if you guys have watched any of those Elk Camp TVs or any of his YouTube videos or any of the old VHS and DVDs, you guys know that he's a, a world champion elk caller. Um, he's developed a lot of his own calls with Rocky Mountain calls and uh, has a lot of mouth diaphragms, a lot of the bugle tubes and a lot of the reed uh, mouth calls. So we really, really hope you enjoy this. We know that elk season and everybody's mind thinking about bugling bulls and the rut is right around the corner. And this is just in time for Arizona elk season. So follow along while we listen to the great Steve Chapel talk about all things elk hunting here in Arizona. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have the great Steve Chapel. Um, this is going to be a new experience for Mike and I and for the CHA podcast because Steve is going to be the first guest that we're doing telephonically. It's it's a new adventure. This year we launched the podcast, as everybody knows. It's going to be a little bit uh, better now that we have the equipment set up in order to reach out to a lot of people that don't aren't able to meet up with us. Everybody's got busy schedules. People are out scouting. Uh, different. Uh, everybody's got different things, so we, we're able to reach people when they're on the road and whatnot. So how you doing, Mike? I am doing fantastic. Hello, everybody. And Steve, are you there? I am. It's great to be on with you guys today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule. We know the rut is going to be in full swing in just over a month, and everybody here, if they're not thinking about antelope, uh, they're only thinking about elk, and I think that consumes everybody's mind if you're a hunter, 365, 24-7, but especially August as you're preparing those last little tidbits of camping and scouting and whatnot. And I know you're going to have a lot of information to share with our audience today. We really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to share your knowledge and uh, all your experience with CHA listeners. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to be on with you guys today. Uh, you're right. September is just around the corner and, and uh, we're brimming with excitement. The bigger bulls are stripping velvet off right now. So we're getting really close, and I, I, I can't wait to get out there and hunt bugling bulls. Just hearing talking about that just gets everybody's blood pumping. I mean, how can you not be excited to, to hear those and, and hear the velvet or uh, hear those bugles, hear the cows, hear, hear you know, just the, the stomping through the forest and hoping to walk across a wallow and uh, capitalize on, you know, seeing your, your trophy bull. But Without getting too far along, um, for the few people that probably don't know who Steve Chapel is, can you uh, introduce yourself, please, and let everybody know how, how you got involved in elk hunting and how long you've been guiding and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was really uh, blessed to be raised, um, you know, not only in a, in a hunting family, but a Christian family. So I'm very thankful for that. And 
you know, my dad and, and granddad were hunters. So I just came by it naturally, I guess you could say. I can't remember it being any different, you know, from the time I was maybe five or six years old tagging along with them on their mule deer hunts. And then when I got a little older and was able to physically get up in the mountains with them and hunt elk, you know, I was along for that. And then obviously as soon as I could legally start hunting myself, I I started into that. Um, I think I really got fascinated with elk because of the vocal aspect and, you know, the ability to interact with them with calls. Um, I remember back in the day, probably in the early 90s, um, you know, when Wayne Carlton and Will Primos were really on the scene and, you know, really popular with elk hunting. I think they really inspired me with their videos. And I really learned a lot from, you know, not only my dad and granddad, but from watching those guys do it on video. And, you know, I can remember my first archery archery hunt where the first time I went out and attempted to hunt elk with a bow, uh, killing an elk and calling it in. And I was just hooked from, from that point on. And, and everything has just kind of flowed from that. Um, you know, I really got into videography and love that aspect of it. Um, you know, it's been a long road to, to get here, but I've got a show airing on Sportsman Channel now. I don't know if uh, your listeners have seen it, but if they haven't, I would encourage them to check out Elk Camp on Sportsman Channel. Um, it's in its fourth season now. And, and again, I just feel really blessed about that. I feel like God has uh, closed a lot of doors in my life, to be honest with you. Um, but he has led me to where I need to be. And I feel like I'm right in the center of it right now. So I, I, I just couldn't be more thankful for that. That's that's no better way of putting it, that God has a, has a purpose. Uh, he's ultimately in control and uh, it's up to us to, to listen to him and, and follow his uh, direction that he opens up doors and, and he knows what's best for all of us. So when we think we're having a hardship and you think you're, you're, you're having one thing or one opportunity that you think you want really bad. Um, you just got to have resolve and have faith and know that something better is going to be coming along. So that's a, that's a great, great point. Yeah. Thank you. I, absolutely. I never question God's will in my life. Sometimes I don't know why things are happening, but I know he, he knows all and knows what's best for me. And I figure as long as I stay in my lane and do the, do the things and use the gifts he's given me, then, then things are going to going to go according to his will. So yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yep, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to go back to 20 years ago, I think when I first met you. So it's probably early 2000s. Um, we used to have uh, these expos um, here in Arizona. And I remember uh, you had a booth coming up and you had some uh, VHS and DVDs just starting to put together all your, your filming and, you know, and, and that was a joy. It seemed like every year I, I purposely went to the expo to come get your, your next year's, you know, edition. So to me, I think that foundation of of you going back 20 years ago and having that, that drive and that will and, and looking at the elk hunting as, cause that was new. I mean, there really wasn't that many elk videos out there, especially as it relates to Arizona elk hunting and, and then showing the family side and your face side and just the excitement of it. Um, I know that impacted me and I, and I look at where you're at now and I, and I love watching elk camp and I follow you on social media on that. So it's kind of cool. And sometimes I comment just to comment just because it's, it's, it's almost like a, my history and kind of still saying kind of in touch with you, but you want to kind of talk about those early days of what it was like to have VHS videos and 
see, you know, <laughs> D- DVDs and all of that, trying to put all that together, then, then have to go to a show and not have all the social media trying to get, you know, get all this great work and all your expertise and education out there as you, which now, now I look, you know, 20 years ago and it's almost seems so natural, but I know back in, back in that day, I mean, it was a struggle for you and you could, you can see you were doing your best as a small business and trying to get it out there and taking your dream and making it into a business and a reality and everything else. But through your expertise of elk hunting and as a professional elk hunter. Yeah, Mike, it was great to meet you back then. And I do remember that it seems not too long ago in some ways and like forever in other ways. Um, yeah, it was crazy to think that we were, it, it kind of dates me, I guess, that our first vid, couple of videos were on VHS. <laughs> um, and, and there was no YouTube or anything like that. So it was a completely different scenario back then. I remember on the second videos when we transitioned into DVD, but that first video uh, was Bugling Frenzy, and it came out right in the year 2000. And a friend of mine, Pat Scalf, worked with me on that one. And, uh, yeah, I learned a lot working with him. Um, it, it was just phenomenal. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've had the support and, and help of a lot of people over the years, so by no means has this been, you know, a one-man thing. Um you know, and with the help of God and a lot of people, it's gotten to where it is today. But yeah, I remember, um, you know, that business was really, uh, really driven by, uh, you know, Sportsman's Warehouse, Cabela's, mom and pop shops buying the videos. You know, videos were very popular back then. I know for myself, I was always buying the newest uh, Primo's or Carlton videos. Uh, and then the landscape really started to change. I, I don't know, maybe it took about eight to 10 years into it. And when, when YouTube came out, it just, and everything started going digital, I could see really quickly that things were going to change. And so, uh, you know, DVD sales started dropping off. The bigger box stores stopped buying them. And uh, I was kind of faced with the hard decision of, you know, do I continue to do this or, or do I just let it die? And, um, you know, there were definitely some struggles and some hard decisions. And I didn't know in the beginning if, if uh, doing the show and airing it on t- television would be the right thing. But, uh, you know, God saw it through and, 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 and put some pieces of the puzzle together that I never could have done. Um, so everything just worked out for the best. Absolutely. But, yeah, it, uh, it's amazing that it's been about a 20-year journey um, and, and in some ways it feels short, but in other ways it makes me feel old. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Me too. I'm with you on that one. Mm. Everybody knows about Wayne Carlton. I mean, anyone that's, uh, hunted in the West and, and has bought mouth calls, I'm sure everybody knows Wayne Carlton. And a couple of years ago, we were fortunate to have Wayne come out from Colorado and do, he was the keynote speaker. I think it was our 20, 2018 or 2019, I think it was 2018, um, elk seminar for Christian hunters of America. And, and boy, is he a character. He, he knows how, <laughs> he knows how to, he knows how to get the crowd going. He knows how to tell a story. Um, he is just, uh, an incredible human being that, um, we had the privilege of meeting in person and not just seeing on TV or on commercials or on a video demonstrating how to do a call. He's, he's a genuine human being that tells a story like no one else. So he, he's hilarious. 
Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've met him a couple of times in person. In fact, one time sat right next to him at a elk banquet one time. He he got his plate and everything and came and sat down by a buddy of mine and and, and I and we visited with him and he's just a fantastic guy and you know, I always say there's people who just come around about once a century and he's one of those kind of people in the hunting industry as well as Will Primos. I feel the same way about him. And I've told Will that before, and he's very humble about it. But, yeah, uh, those guys really inspired me. I learned so much from them. I'm so glad that they did what they did because it inspired me. And, uh, yeah, I, I can only, I've been to some of Wayne's seminars, and, and, and absolutely, he can light up a room, and he's just so entertaining and, and, and natural and, and just such a natural talent. So I'm sure um, you are. I don't. I'm sure you're you're inspiring a lot of people as well with the I know calling is is very very um subjective um but you're a master at it so I apologize if I interrupted you um but I just wanted to make that point that I'm sure you're inspiring a lot of people the the social media the YouTube Instagram Facebook and and then obviously on Sportsman Channel the Elk Camp TV Everybody recognizes that, and I'm sure everybody who's seen that knows the, the, the quality bulls that you're able to guide your clients on. Oh, well, thank you for that. You know, I, I don't feel worthy to carry the torch that, you know, Wayne and Will and guys like that. Larry Jones, you know, I could name quite a few people, but, um, you know, glory to God, I, I only hope, hope that I'm doing well with it. And, uh, yeah, I've been blessed as well, too, with being able to have a line of elk calls that I uh, – have worked with Rocky mountain hunting calls on going on 11 years now, really hard to believe. So, um, that's been a, a, a fantastic thing. And, you know, again, I just want to go back and give credit to God and, and, and my family for raising me as a hunter, because I can't even imagine my life without doing this or without hunting. And it. it's, it's, it's amazing. Yep. And that is true. And I think that, um, really showcases in elk camp video, you know, as I watch elk camp and even the early videos, um, family faith, um, the fellowship, um, that really kind of is what set me off as, because we, we all have to have to invest our time in what we watch. And I know that's one of the things that always drove me was just, it, it was real. It wasn't made up stories. It wasn't, you know, this, we had to shoot this 400 inch bull elk or the three inch bull. Um, and I think Chet just kind of made the, the statement that stood out to me is you, you year in and year out, you, your clients hire risk quality bulls. And to me, when I hear quality, that means it's up to that individual, that hunter and whatever he harvests and he is excited for, and he's proud of. And to me, that's, that's what elk hunting is. It's, it's about the, the fellowship and, and that adventure and the accomplishment of, and being proud of what you harvest. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Mike. I think it's so amazing. I, I've been able to meet so many fantastic people over the years and just develop a friendship and a bond with them. And, and I feel like for me, the main goal that I have when I'm hunting with someone is to d develop that friendship and trust first. And then I think everything flows from that. You know, if you're hunting together as friends and teammates, then I owe and having fun. I always say good things happen. You know, yeah, sure. We hunt hard and you know, we grind it out and go after it. But I think if you're not pressuring yourself up or your client up and uh, making the hunt all about a score or a number, or, you know, maybe one particular animal, um, but, but just going out and enjoying the experience. And, you know, if you're hunting during the rut, enjoying the calling and the close interactions that only elk hunting can bring, 
just good things flow from that. Um, I've just had so many great clients who it's amazing after doing this for gosh, over 25, maybe pushing 30 years now, how it's still so much about your confidence when you're out there calling. And if you have a client who's, you know, complimenting you and encouraging you and instilling that confidence in you, you do so much better um, than if you're feeling a little bit shaky about it. Because I, I don't know about you guys, but I think the most intimidating thing out there in the woods is when you go out there and, you know, it's, it's, it's silent or the bulls are bugling, but you break the, you break the ice with your call. That first call that comes out uh, can be a little bit nerve wracking, wondering exactly what it's going to sound like. And I still kind of have that feeling in those butterflies after all this time, to be honest with you, but that that's what makes it fun. And I don't think if you, if you get those butterflies, you know, and that little bit of nervousness that, that you should be doing it, you know, cause it's all about that, that adrenaline. The adrenaline dump is what keeps us going. It's our, it's our, uh, it's our, um, we, Mike and I call it our addiction. It's, it's a healthy addiction and we're blessed to have families that, uh, support our addiction too, that we love going out in big camps and big groups and, and bringing more people in to the hunting, um, through CHA and, uh, getting them more involved in some of our mentored hunts and whatnot. But, there is nothing like it. Um, that that adrenaline rush um, and learning how to control that uh, buck fever or bull fever or whatever you're <laughs> harvesting is is nothing like it. And everybody that that's been hunting for a long time, you still get that rush, and that's what keeps bringing you back in. That it, it doesn't go away. The excitement still stays there 20, 30, 40 years after um, you first started at ten or twelve years old. Oh yeah, no doubt. And you know, for me, the older I get, I think, you know, obviously the, the, the taking, harvesting, killing of that animal, however you want to say it, um, you know, it's, it, I, as hunters, it's the ultimate goal besides the experience and the fun of it, but it, that becomes less and less important to me. And it's, it's more about, you know, the experience and playing that game, that chess match with the elk and, and calling them in. Um, you know, if I go out and and call elk in for my client. I feel, I feel satisfied by that. Even if we don't take an animal that particular day mm-hmm. and I, and then I don't feel satisfied with myself if we go out and I don't do well and don't put an elk in front of my client. That's kind of the challenge I, I make to myself is, you know, that that's why I'm out there uh, with this hunter is to, you know, give him experiences like that. And, uh, I don't want to let him down that way. So that's the, pr- I, I put plenty of pressure on myself for sure. Um, but yeah, it's become more and more about just, you know, winning that calling game with the elk for me. In fact, sometimes when we get a bull down and I walk up to it, I think, why couldn't this elk just, you know, let us take some photos and video and then get up and run away. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, not, and not have to pack it out. You know what I mean? Yeah, the meat <laughs> is great. I love elk meat, but sometimes when you get one in a bad spot, you just, you just wish you could kill and release that animal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For sure, for sure. I'm with you on that one. So you said a, a key uh, phrase that really jumped out at me in, in confidence, um, having confidence as a hunter. And I think that is one of the things that when I look at you and I and I watch the videos and, and I also had a, a bull tag in one of our premier units uh, in Arizona in 2019. And I remember it was during the hunt. Um, I got done chasing and then I was using trail cameras and I pull up my trail camera and, and I'm like, hey, Steve Chappell's on this drinker. 
Woohoo! I'm not leaving this drinker at all. That means if he's not here, my confidence shot through the roof, and I'm like, this is where I'm hunting. But it's interesting how just a confidence of a, an image or a site or an interaction or just knowing your calling capabilities or elk hunting, how that really changes your whole perspective of a hunt. You want to kind of expand about confidence and how that relays as a outfitter here in Arizona who dedicates tremendous time in Arizona, spends a lot of time and you have your family and your friends that you work closely with. And I know you've been hunting Arizona for I don't know, 25 years, at least that I'm aware of. And year in, year out, you're, you're on quality bulls and, and giving those opportunities to your clients. Yeah, Mike, that's, that's pretty cool that you mentioned that you should have sent that photo to me. Heck, I would have gone and hunted somewhere else if I saw myself on the camera. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, anyway, um, you know, I feel like for me, confidence originates with my relationship with the Lord, with Jesus Christ. Um, for me, um, when I wake up in the morning and it's dark and I'm getting ready to hunt, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of talking to the Lord and, you know, just praying silently to him and, and just asking for his uh, blessing on the day and just for things to go well. I don't think it has to be a big, deep, you know, prayer of any of any sort but just basically i'm just asking the lord to 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 help me to do my best and to have confidence and to you know for safety and just for fun and a good time with a hunter and to be a good testimony um that's where i feel like my confidence originates because in and of myself i i really am pretty weak and can do nothing without the lord's strength so um, that's where it all starts from. And then, like I was mentioning, mentioning earlier, I, I really draw off people around me. Um, I, I really feel like, you know, my, my goal is to uplift and bring people up around me. And there's people around me who do the same for me, um, you know, instilling confidence in me. But, uh, yeah, I just feel like the foundation of that and where that all comes from is, is from my relationship with the Lord. Amen. With uh, Mike had a, a premium unit a couple of years ago that a few of us uh, got to experience and help him scout out, and uh, luckily it was in a it it, uh, it passed close to a roadway that it wasn't too far. Um, with all the nooks and crannies of this, it it worked out for him and worked out for everybody helping him that we didn't have that far of a pack out. Um, <laughs> But what, um, talking about that unit, I don't know if Mike wants to share it or not, but yeah, what sure. are unit nine? So I, I, I waited many years and drew a, a premier unit nine tag. In my opinion, it's probably one of the top three units in the state of Arizona and just had an absolutely incredible hunt. Steve, what are your, yeah. what are your top five units? I know guy, a lot of guys, um, you know, if they grew up in the Eastern Arizona, they're, they're going to say certain areas, uh, 3C, one twenty-seven. If you know you're from the rim country, you're going to say twenty-three. But from a a guide's perspective, that hunts all over Arizona and has been hunting here for a long time, could you share what you believe your top five units are? That if, if you're recommending them to people that are asking. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think anybody will be surprised by what I say here. Um, you know, for me, it's going to be, you know, units nine and ten in the northwest part of the state. And then we, as we move over to the northeast, it, uh, obviously uh, I really like 23 north, although there's very few tags and it's very hard to get clients in that unit. Um, and then I like 
one and three C would, would be my top five. Um, I think 27 is a great unit, but it's, it's, it's pretty rugged country and it's got to be for the right kind of person, a person who's, you know, pretty physical and, and can hike in, you know, the higher elevations and the, the steeper country. Um, so for the right person, that can be a phenomenal elk hunt. Um, you know, as we all know, nine and 10, especially really live and die by moisture and uh, last fall, well, the whole spring, summer, and fall was totally droughted last year. So it significantly impacted the whole state, but, you know, really, really hammered nine and 10 and made it very difficult. Even though the antler growth was good because we had good winter and spring conditions, uh, the rut was almost non-existent. So it made it very hard and frustrating, especially for the way I like to hunt. That's why I'm so excited about this year um you know we didn't have the best conditions for antler growth because that drought persisted through the winter and into the spring but boy did we get a good monsoon these you know last two or three weeks and so i'm really encouraged with all this water and grass sprouting up that we're going to have a good rut and uh you know it's going to be phenomenal and fun to be out there you know i think there's some other units that that people can have great hunts in as well not just these you know top five and there's people I'm sure that would have other opinions on, on different units. I think some units like, you know, seven West, um, you know, eight can be good. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some others, uh, you know, three B maybe is kind of a little bit of a sleeper unit. Um, but the great thing about area Arizona is that trophy bulls can be had in any unit, um, Arizona's just got phenomenal genetics and, and, you know, the right minerals in the soil and just everything needed to produce these big bulls. So it's just a blessing to be able to hunt in Arizona. Absolutely. And uh, specifically for you, I know you, you guide every year. So what are your favorite units that, let's say, one of our listeners decides to apply for a unit and they want to hire you? What would you be your top recommendations that they would apply for? Then if they wanted to hire you, what would be those units that you really specialize in? Yeah, I would say echoing those units again, you know, 9, 10, uh, 1, 3C. Um, obviously, for someone who really wants to swing for the fence, 23 North, you know, without a doubt, especially especially for the residents. Um, I think the big key to keep in mind is, is how the draw works and the fact that of your five choices, the draw is going to legitimately consider both your first and your second choice the first time it gets to your application. And a lot of people don't understand the significance of that. But what this, what that allows you to do when you understand it is you can swing for the fence with your first choice and go for a really premier hunt, you know, regardless of what your expectations for trophy quality are. To me, the, the tougher pick is the second choice because that's where an applicant has to decide, okay, what is my baseline? You know, what, what is my minimum expectation? And once you've settled on that, then you can pick a sensible second choice that of course has better draw odds than your first choice, but that still meets your expectations for hunt quality. That's the wise way to apply. Um, I'm kind of a testament to that because I've, I've drawn my second choice three times in the last 20 years and that's the only choice i've drawn i've never drawn my first choice up to this point i've never had a nine tag 10 tag 3c1 any of those units it's always been second choice hunts like 6b 70 7 west my last hunt was in 2010 and 7 east 
Um, super tough hunt that year. Not a lot of bugling. Um, I, I came away with a, with a really nice bull that pushes 350. Um, there's kind of a long backstory to that that I, I won't go into because it'd probably take me 30 minutes. But uh, thanks to a, a phenomenal sportsman named Charlie, who's still a good friend of mine. In fact, we were texting yesterday. Um, you know, long story short, I hit a bull that I wasn't able to recover and, and Charlie, this great sportsman found it. And I ultimately got reunited with the the bull, uh, and, uh, and looking at it here in my study and it just brings back a lot of, a lot of great memories. And I remember that story. I, I think that was published, wasn't it? I, I believe that story was out there. Um, how, and how that person found it. Then you, then you have to go to a game and fish auction to get the antlers or something. Was that, that that's exactly. That's exactly right, Mike. Absolutely right. Yep, I, I ended up getting it back at the uh, International Sportsman's Exposition in February. And, uh, you know, lucky for me, there weren't a bunch of people bidding against me. So I was able to get it back. And, you know, it just uh, really warmed my heart when some people came up who I didn't even know and handed me a $100 bill. A couple of people did that and said, I want to do this to help you get that bull back because I feel like, you know, you were, it's rightfully yours. And, and I just want to do this. And man, I tell you what, that, that just touched me when, when, when people did that, it was a, it was an incredible day, definitely mixed emotions, you know, the whole thing. Uh, there, there was a lot of ups and downs and wondering what was going to ultimately happen, but uh, it, it all ended up good. I'll tell you what, I was there that day and that's why I brought this up. And it's funny how, incidentals and you've, you've never heard the story but i remember being there and you had friends there and there was a group of individuals that were basically going around and telling everybody hey telling that story of why you were there and why you wanted that bull so it was almost like you had this 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 crowd of people that you probably didn't even realize that were there to support you and they were kind of quietly right. just grabbing people and having these small little side stories and I was one of the guys that was approached because I was checking out the stuff. And that's kind of how I was told as an individual came to me. Hey, just want to let you know that's uh, Steve Chappell right there. And he lost that bull. And this is a dream bull for him to recover those antlers. And it was kind of cool to just, I just happened to be there by happen chance. But I was actually there kind of witnessing everything that kind of happened. And I remember the emotions of your face. I, I think that was probably, if people didn't realize the importance of what a bull would represent and a backstory and the time and effort and everything that came through watching the emotion and, and the excitement of seeing that you were the winning bidder on that. Yeah, it was an amazing day. I guess ultimately the moral of the story is if I'd have made a better shot, <laughs> it would have all ended a lot faster and a lot easier for me. And I'd have got to enjoy the elk meat too. So I always say when I'm the hunter, when I release an arrow, everyone with me, their, our nightmare has just started. So <laughs> uh, I, I just, uh, you know, I can't wait till my next tag. And uh, I hope ultimately that I make a perfect shot on this next one. But I realize that it's part of hunting. And, you know, hey, I think that helps me when I'm hunting with someone and guiding someone that I realize that we're human. And, you know, not only are, you know, are we fallen and do we need a savior as far as our salvation goes, but you know, we're not perfect in this life. So when I have a client and I'll make a perfect shot, the last thing I'm going to do is get down on that guy because I know I've been there. And so, Absolutely. you know, to me, I, I want to be that guy that uplifts my client. Sure. I encourage them to make the best shot they can. And we talk about that before we go out and we talk about shot angles and 
stopping the bull and getting a standing shot and not just taking, you know, flippant shots at them because uh, we never want that. But yeah, if, if things don't go well and, and, and my hunter doesn't make a perfect shot, I want to encourage him and uplift him because he, he feels down enough. He definitely doesn't need me heaping it on him. <laughs> Absolutely. And that brings up a great question. So let's say you have your client and they happen to make a marginal shot. So what is the most essential steps what would you have, would you do and have your client do once you realize that that was a marginal shot? So I think that's where a lot of people sometimes make a mistake, what they do immediately after that. Would you want to kind of talk about that steps for the listeners that may have their first time making a bad shot, what they should do in that situation? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. Um, the first thing for me is, is I play it super conservative and I usually have the benefit of being able to watch it back on video and that's what I love with archery hunting is especially if you're using a lighted knock, it helps you really identify where that, where that bull was hit. And, and if I see that the shot is marginal, the first thing I'm going to do is play it super safe. And I, I tell you what, my, my first reaction is obviously mark the spot well where you took the shot, you know, really get good visuals on where the animal ran off to and stuff. But I tell you what, I do not go in the direction the elk left. I, if I can't immediately see the arrow right out there, I don't go looking for the arrow because what inevitably happens is if you start on that trail or you think I'm going to go find first blood, before you know it, you blink your eye and you're 200 yards down the trail. And next thing you know, you're jumping that animal. And then you've decreased your odds of, of recovering that animal significantly. So, what I typically do after I've marked everything well is I just I just back out in, in the opposite direction that that animal left, and I get us out of there because then the, the temptation is not to – because if you've got two or three guys there, there's always someone that's going to start saying, hey, let's just go look for first blood or let's go look for the arrow. And then, again, that scenario plays out where next thing you know, you're down the trail and jumping that elk. So I get, I get us out of the woods. Um you know, usually I'm going to give several hours, depending on where the hit, you know, if it was a gut shot, I'm typically going to give, you know, six to eight hours, um, usually six before I even leave camp, because then that gets us back out there. And by the time we get on the trail, some more times, you know, transpired. So, um, you know, I, I'm absolutely worried and concerned about the meat, but I feel like what is the better scenario? You finding that, that animal that you shot, you know, you hit that animal, you're responsible for, you know, doing your due diligence to find that animal, putting a tag on that animal and and being done with your hunt, as opposed to playing it, you know, on the on the aggressive side and jumping that animal and, and losing it and then being faced with that decision of, OK, what do we do now? You know, do we continue hunting? What are we going to do? So I really err on the side of caution. And, and, and being conservative on following up and tracking, I just feel like that—that's usually the right decision. I think most everybody can agree with that. It, it's hard that temptation to want to go after it. Um, you're a hunter. I mean, first and foremost, we're out there hunting, and that urge and that desire to go track that animal. But uh, training and experience and being out there with people that have been doing it a lot longer, obviously will help anybody that does make a bad shot, whether that be archery or even rifle. Uh, plenty of people that, you know, you could be several hundred yards away and make a bad shot, and you definitely 
aren't as close. You don't see the direction necessarily unless it's out in an open field. But if you're in thick timber and, and make a, a rifle shot from across a canyon or across a plateau, um, it's best if you don't see that animal go down or your spotter or, or whatnot, just, you know, make that visual hike over there, maybe make a point of putting a, a pin, you know, or dropping a GPS pin and then and getting out of there. So those are really, really good points. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely, even with rifles, elk amaze me all the time about how tough and resilient they are. And, and I'm never shocked when one gets away because until I'm putting hands on him, I'm not a believer that <laughs> that he's down for good. They they are just incredible. Their resilience to live and get away from you. Oh yeah, I mean you got you got grizzly bears and other states chasing them. You got mountain lions here, and I'm sure some I don't. I haven't talked to anyone from Game and Fish, but I would imagine that some of these Mexican gray wolves in eastern Arizona, um, if if given the chance, would definitely, in their pack structure, go after them. So just because they're no big, and, big and bad um, and much larger than a mule deer or our little coos whitetails doesn't mean that, that they aren't the, on the dinner table for some of the predators here in Arizona. Um, Absolutely. We, we touched a little bit earlier a lot of a lot of the whole west is experiencing a drought arizona everybody that lives here knows that we rely our water tables uh game and fish catchments our lakes our streams our ponds are you know all relying on either monsoon or good snow melt in the in the high country to to make those water tables and the catchments fill back up and there's a lot of good conservation groups here in Arizona, us included, that are doing water catchment refills and, and getting the trailers and putting them out there so that we can refill some of these catchments. But with a drought, you know, long time ago when you couldn't have a trailer or that wasn't the, the latest technology where people are filling up these 500 or 1,000 gallon trailers, Game and Fish was mostly the ones doing it. But how does the, the drought that a lot of the West is experiencing, but specifically here in Arizona, how does that drought affect antler growth? Oh yeah, definitely has an impact. Um, you know, like I was saying, last year was good for antler growth, but poor for the rut. So you really need both. You need the good winter and spring moisture, but then you also need the monsoon moisture for the rut. Um, you know, we, we, we really see that, especially in these more north to northwest units that the the elk really live and die by that uh, winter and spring moisture to grow their best antlers. Um, you know, I'm a little encouraged this year, even with the droughty conditions, that the antler growth isn't terrible. It's it's by no means stellar, um, but it's but it's not the worst I've seen either. So, um, what always amazes me too that even on the good years, even on the good moisture years, is 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 where the more mature bulls grow and, uh, and and are at during their velvet stage they're typically in you know drier parts of the units and uh, you'd be really surprised where you find them sometimes i think what are they doing eating eating rocks and cedar trees and and drinking out of drinkers to grow these giant antlers right um it's just it's just amazing to me uh how they do that and you know how they grow those antlers in just such a short amount of time i've heard it said that they can grow like an inch a day it's a pretty, you know, phenomenal thing. Um, 
you know, the, the, the God has done there, you know, making an elk. It's just amazing to me. The resiliency and all those ungulates of how every year, you know, if you really sit back and think about from the biggest, you know, Alaska moose to, uh, our little coos deer, uh, here in the Southwest, the fact that they drop those antlers every year, um, after the rut, uh, springtime, most of the, the animals out here when everybody goes shed hunting or in other states, but to think that every year they're growing those all the way back, going through the velvet, you know, the, the biology behind that is fascinating and yeah. the resiliency and, and how a lot of people don't think about that. Um, you know, the green right. up, if forest service is doing a clear cut in certain areas as Arizona is experienced and you're like, Oh man, there goes all the cover. Uh, we're, you know, not going to be able to, to find them because the, that was a bedding area. But at the same time, if you're looking at a, as a glass half full kind of scenario, then you know that with forest, with forest fires, excuse me, with forest fires, then you're going to have a lot of green up and that nutrients um, from the carbon that breaks down. And when they're cutting them and allowing the sunshine to come through in, in a densely forested canopy or, or pinion juniper area that some of the shrubs and some of the stuff that they eat a little bit better is now able to grow and flourish and, you know, start that different life cycle from that aspect. The, the drought and the monsoon now that we're seeing, um, I think last month and this month specifically, we've definitely got a lot of rain where from January to June, a lot of people were delivering water throughout the state in those catchments yes. like we touched about. But July and August from all of our scouting that we've seen, it seems like most of the, the tables, a lot of the reservoirs, uh, the, a lot of natural occurring ponds, and man-made catchments are, are really full, which is encouraging. Does that monsoon you touched about a little bit on how it puts a lot of some of those animals into the rut because of that moisture, but does that monsoon help grow those top ends at all when, when it's finishing up and they're about ready to shed? Is it, does it help them at all? Uh, to finish the top ends out, or when do they? When do you feel that they aren't going to grow anymore, and it's just helping build the excitement for the rut? If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you know I've noticed by running trail cameras that the bigger bulls, I mean they're really big by the first of July, and they really are what they are by about mid July. They might do just a little bit of tipping out, you know toward the third week of July, um, you know, with the way the monsoons typically hit, usually, you know, around mid to, to late July, I don't really feel like those necessarily help with the antler growth. Um, but, but like you said, sure does help conditions to, to bring on a, a good rut because they all are able to get, you know, healthy and, and slick and fat and uh, ready for the rut. I think that's what happened last year um, with the conditions is that the cows just weren't cycling and and you know that wasn't happening so the bulls really really uh react and play off of that um and 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 when the cows aren't cycling and the bulls aren't feeling it it's it's tough to call them they just don't want to have anything to do with your calling so um yeah i don't feel like these uh, monsoon storms help with the antler growth necessarily but uh you know what a blessing i heard uh david rigo recently say he's a unit nine game warden he said that 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 area was i believe he said 11 inches short of moisture in the past year 
so these recent storms have really done a lot, you know, to, to bring us back. Uh, you know, obviously, we still need, you know, more and more to come in the fall, hopefully in the winter. But uh, it's been quite a few years since I've seen widespread moisture like this and, you know, ponds with water in them all over the place instead of just in the drinkers. And uh, I think it's so wonderful, but that's taken some of the pressure off from, you know, you guys having the hall water and the elk society and, you know, the, the game managers and such having to deal with it. It's, it's, it's just a, a, a blessing to get all these rains. I couldn't be more excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and being born and raised in Arizona, I, I honestly cannot remember rain like we've had and, and seeing how green the forest is in July and everywhere yeah. we go, there's pools of water. I, I, it has to be the, late 80s early 90s since i remember that kind of moisture and rain and green and lush in july it's it's really fascinating it's just like it's, it's almost like it's not even northern arizona anymore because we've been so accustomed to dry and dust and and everything else yeah no doubt it, exactly it, like you it kind of reminds me of the good old days i can remember going out and hunting like in the you know sometimes in the late like nine, 1999 was a phenomenal monsoon year i remember and uh, I remember some friends uh, had unit nine tags that year. I mean, the, the grass was knee high. It was it was amazing. Wow. And the rut the rut was incredible. You know, I just reminisce back to that and just think, oh, can we go back to how that was? That would be amazing. So I'm hoping that's the kind of year that we have this year. And the you know the tag holders get to have a lot of fun on the hunts this year. It would be awesome. It should make for some exciting video, especially if, if this moisture continues. It, it doesn't look, um, looking for the rest of this month, it looks like there's often on showers scattered throughout the month, which is good. And we need that all the way through September 1 for, for all the hunters. Mike and I don't get tags this year, unfortunately, but we do wish best of luck for everyone else, and we hope everybody has an exciting hunt, and that makes great video for uh, for you. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking about because last year was so tough in that aspect. And I'm just kind of licking my chops thinking about how it could be. And, you know, hope, hopefully I'm able to, to do well with the calling and, and, uh, yeah, they, they come in and, and, and bugle for the camera. It's a lot of fun. Yep. Absolutely. And I, that was kind of the, the thing I was going to bring up and you, you hit it perfectly is normally in a dry year, I think everybody's so focused on the water holes and sitting water, you know, morning and evening and not really even calling because they just want to just sit and wait and on the flip side your whole passion and what you do with your call line and and what you love to show your clients is the calling aspect where I think you're probably going to be the exception to the rule this year because a lot of people aren't going to be able to sit water because there's water everywhere and it's going to really lower the success rate but now you want to kind of talk about the calling side of why you love calling and and this year might be the you may be the premier outfitter in the state of Arizona just based on your calling methods and, and what you love to do. Yeah, it's amazing how it's just changed. My paradigm has shifted thinking about the year because earlier in the year, guys, I was thinking, my goodness, I need to face reality. And I'm going to have to think about, you know, having Hunter sit water this year because if it's like last year, calling is just not going to be very effective. And to be honest with you, it was kind of just depressing me thinking about that. And playing that way, because as, as we all know, it can be very competitive at water, especially on years like last year where the water sources are really limited. I mean, I saw guys at 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning already in their blinds, already at the tanks. So it was very competitive. So, yeah, I'm so encouraged that this is going to be more of a normal year. 
like you said, with the widespread water, not to say that people still can't, you know, take elk at water sources. I think they definitely can. But number one, it'll make it a little less competitive because there'll be more water sources available to sit. Um, but then for me, yeah, I'll be able to do what I love to do and, and, and hopefully do it effectively. And, uh, you know, I tell you, ever since that first bull I called in back in the early 90s, I've just been hooked on it. And it's just what it's all about for me. I always say it starts and ends with elk. I'm just kind of a one-trick pony. Um, they just have such a special place in my heart. Um, there's just nothing like them. You know, when someone <laughs> tells me how great hunting another animal is, I kind of smile and say, yeah, but do they bugle? <laughs> it's so that, that to me is why they're such a set apart, uh, you know, animal in, in the creation. Um, you know, yeah, turkeys gobble, you can call coyotes in, but I just think there's nothing like a bull elk coming into a call. It's there's just hair raising more majestic than seeing that on a, on an early, you know, autumn or fall morning of, you know, that picturesque, uh, visual painting that everybody can create in their imagination of the elk, you know, the dew and the fog rolling in, or, you know, when we have that, uh, that moisture and its head tilted back and you can see the steam coming from its mouth and nostrils, <laughs> there's, there's nothing better than that visual. And that's what everybody dreams about, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's giving me a charge just having that visual in my mind right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Got me excited. And I just thought about one of your videos. And so let's say you're out there and you, you put out your call and all of a sudden you get three bulls that are all screaming at you, you know, and they're all appear to be in the same distance or location, you know, but at, at you know, might, one might be right, one might be forward, one might be to the left or vice versa or behind you. How do you determine which of those bulls based on what you're hearing and the setup? Um, to figure out which one you're going to try to set up on because you know that at some point they're all going to come in at different angles and how would you play that one out because I, I know watching the videos I see how you do it but maybe for the listeners how would let's say they're out there and it's one of those bugling crazies and they throw a bugle or a cow call and they get a bunch of bulls all screaming what would be your your next steps and suggestions uh, for the listeners yeah. Yeah, Mike, I'm that guy who's kind of guilty of judging bulls by the sound of their bugle, and I know that's not always 100% accurate, but I think if you take that approach during, you know, say a two-week archery hunt, and you hunt the more aggressive, deeper, more, uh, you know, raspy-sounding bugles, and when you're out there, you're going to know, you, you can tell the difference in the aggression. Um, I feel like the herd bulls typically are going to bugle, you know, more more often more aggressive with more angst and those are the ones that i want to pursue um you know people who hunt with me i think the first thing they're surprised by is in general i i call less than they think i'm going to um, when i'm actually got a bull bugling um if they're not bugling yeah i'll call, i'll say um you know the, the elk may not bugle but i'm definitely going to be a bugling bull today <laughs> and you're going to hear me me call trying to get something going but when they're bugling on their own, I like to get in tight with them. And people are surprised at, at how tight I will get. You know, generally for me, that, that magic zone takes place within, within 150 yards, if not less. If I can get to 120 or 100, if the terrain and vegetation will allow me to do that, then I will before I, you know, set up and try to call that bull in. Because to me, the more convenient and easy you make it, for them to come to you, the more effective you're going to be. Because if you're playing the wind right and you're getting the wind to your advantage, basically what you're doing is you're making that elk 
lose the wind to his advantage because they're all about their biggest defense is their nose, and they're typically always playing the wind on you. So when I set up, I don't want to make it easy for them to be able to swing down wind of me. So I totally try to get the wind at my advantage, have it below blowing directly at me or very much toward me so that they're not able to slip it around and get that wind. Um, and, and then comes in the fact that you've got to be close because they're, that bull is losing the wind to come to that call. I, I feel like he's more likely to do it when you're close and it's convenient for him. And, and then the other thing is with your calls, um, when you practice, I really try to focus on, you know, not just calling at a, at a, at a medium volume or a loud volume, but also can I blow this call very softly and very subtly and, and sweetly and not loud? Because if I've moved in, say, from a half a mile and now I'm 100 yards away from that bull and my first call out is kind of loud and harsh, I, I've learned that that's not what they want to hear right away when you're first introducing yourself, so to speak. So, you know, you want that first call to come out pretty sweet and soft. And, uh, you know, most times I'll blow it away from them as well to see how they react to it. Um, but, yeah, I'm all about using uh, the terrain and stealth and getting in there as tight as I can before I start trying to call to them. Yep, no, that that's fantastic advice. And I think if, if that's everybody on that's listening just heard that little advice right there, I think they'd walk away a thousand times better hunter just based on that. And so when I look at your videos and you brought up the wind and the criticality of the wind, so I noticed in a lot of your videos, sometimes you'll get a bull, a bull bugle and all of a sudden it shows you guys kind of walking away. And my assumption is that you sometimes may have to do a half a mile or a quarter mile and actually do a big horseshoe to get that wind right. Even though the bulls is a lot closer, you're actually going away from the bull and doing a huge loop to get that, that, that wind right in order to have that calling sequence. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I like to do that if I have to do that as quickly as possible, because as you know, there's just a window where they're aggressive and bugling in the morning most times. And, you know, that can sometimes be as short as 15 to 30 minutes. So you got to make hay while the sun shines, so to speak. And, you know, you got to get in there and, and mix it up with them as quickly as you can. But yeah, that wind is the most critical. And sometimes, you know, my wind checker is my most valuable piece of equipment beside my calls, but sometimes it's my worst enemy too, because it makes you feel ridiculous sometimes. You know what I mean? Cause you're having to do that loop around and get the wind right. But I tell you, anytime I've ever gotten in a hurry or tried to take a shortcut, so to speak, and not play the wind exactly right and get it, get it in my advantage. Um, because I feel a little rushed for whatever reason, it just never works out. Um, I, I feel like no matter how particular you are about your sense, especially like with me, because I've got me, I've got a, a hunter, I've got a cameraman, there's three people there. So there's more scent, uh, out there in the air. I, I've just got to play the wind, right? So, um, you know, I will never hunt elk without that wind checker, even though sometimes, you know, I, I, it aggravates the fire out of me. <laughs> Absolutely. No, very, very true. Very true. On uh, some of your mouth calls or some of your reeds and the bugle tubes, can you touch on those, some of the ones that you prefer? I know if anyone's listening and, and they check out your your website, you have some on there for sale. Um, what are the ones that you see that work out here a little bit better than the rest? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking about that. So, yeah, I work with Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls on these calls, and they just do a phenomenal job, I feel like. 
Um, I really feel like the key to, to, to sounding good with bugling is you would be amazed at how much difference a, a, a bugle tube can make, the design of a bugle tube. And there's so many different ones out there. Um, I, I, I really feel like this rogue tube that I have um, with Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls by design, it really creates a, a very three-dimensional sound to it. It's it's just got real depth and three dimension, um, and it's the way the tube is designed. It's got a tube tamer on the inside of it as well that takes the plasticky sound out. So I think the foundation of good bugling is the is the tube you choose. So I would encourage the listeners to check out that rogue uh, grunt tube or bugle tube. And then obviously the mouth read is the is the second element. Um, you know, my favorite for bugling is, is my Royal Point read. Um, it's it's got a, a, a tighter stretch than than a reed would for for good cow calling. Um, so it allows you to reach those high notes, and you know if you want get those multi note bugles. Um, also very good. I feel like good chuckling and grunting. It's very hard to find people who are great at chuckling and grunting because I feel like those are the hardest sounds to make in all of the elk language. Um, it, I was telling a guy the other day, not only does good chuckling have a high element to it, but it's also got a depth element to it too. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive that, can, that it can have both, but it does when you listen to a real bull chuckling or grunting. It's got a real high end to it but it's got depth and three-dimensional quality. Um, so, yeah, that rogue tube in combination with that Royal Point really works well for me. Um, then I've also got a read called the Elk Camp. Um, it's got an orange tape on it. It's really designed for making good cow calls. I think it really has just a sweet spot-on tone for that. Um, I've even seen some people bugle with it. I really like it for that as well. Uh, and then the other read, the third read, has uh, got the red tape. It's called the Times Up. Um, for me, that's kind of the utility read, if you will, the one that you can really um, bugle on well. It's got a it's got a double read. The second read has a has like a V cut in it, uh, which makes it easier to blow, but it gives it some spine, if you will, and makes it more durable, so you can really pound on it bugling. Uh, and then as you break it in a little bit, um, it, it kind of makes the tone a little more medium and, and brings it down into that cow calling uh, realm. So you can do both on it. Um, that's that's yeah. the red and color tines up one? Yeah, the tines up one. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and then aside from those, those mouth reads, I know it's a challenge for a lot of people to blow a mouth read. I'm just going to say, guys, that I've called in. I would say easily 80% of the bulls in my career I've called in with an open read cow call. They are just phenomenal. They, I, I feel like you still have to spend, you know, the time to practice and master them to where you can get that nice nasally three-dimensional quality and be able to blow them in that sweet spot. But I'm telling you, if you can't blow a mouth read and you, you know, you really uh, pick up those open reads and master those, I've got one called the trophy wipes. <laughs> and one called the Heartbreaker. Um, if you can master reads like that, you will be amazed at the at the bulls you can call in. I mean, especially the satellite bulls who don't have cows and they're ripe for the picking. And they hear that call, they hear that you know that uh, that that raspy little bit of rasp in it, that three dimensional nasal element. They just come on the fly to those calls. Um, yeah, I remember back in the day when I first started. 
you know, I was using like the Primo's Hyperlip, uh, you know, Wayne Carlton's fight, fight and cow call. Um, so that's where it all kind of began, began for me. And I've obviously based these calls, you know, in, in large part to, to the sound and how effective those calls were for me, if you know what I'm saying. Yep. Absolutely. Cause I remember yep. 20 years ago, that's you, you had, you had the Hyperlip single is what I think is what they called yep. it. And that was the one that yep. you were showcasing everything else. Then when we look at the videos and I'd see that video, and of course I went and bought a dozen of them just because you were using it and it was on the video and everything else. And now seeing that you have your own call lines on that. And I had, I have both of those and they are phenomenal. I, I can attest that when I had my unit nine bull tag in 2019, then I saw your picture on that camera and I got both your calls. I'm like, boy, it's game time. All I got to do is copycat <laughs> him watching the videos and make that same sound. And, and there it was. So, <laughs> right on Mike. It sounds like you, sounds like you definitely did well. Absolutely. That's awesome to hear, man. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. 2019 was a good year. I had a great year in unit nine as well. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear those calls. Well, worked so well for you. I would say to the listeners out there, the one thing they can do if they have an open read call, whether it's mine or, or anyone else's, if it has a castration band on it, that's that little like rubber band, thick rubber band thing that goes around the soundboard and the read. Mm-hmm. Um, if their call suddenly or over time kind of becomes not so sweet for them. In other words, it's, it's harder to blow. It doesn't break as easy. It's just not quite sweet for you anymore. The first thing I do when, when my call gets that way is I replace that castration band and it just seems to freshen the call up and make it brand new again. And those, um, you can find them in any you know feed supply store, tractor supply, Big R, any place like that. Um, they'll have those castration bands, and you can just buy you know a pack of say fifty of them, very inexpensive, two or three dollars, and and freshen your call right up that's by a, doing that. That's an incredible tip that doesn't cost much. Yeah, um, and that's a great point because I know living here in Arizona in the Scout, and I I have a tendency to leave all my calls in my truck, and next thing you know, they're all you know, rotten out and then the heat and everything else. And that's a very great point. I never even thought about that. Instead of going online and ordering those, I can just go right to my local tractor supply. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one other thing I'll tell them is another thing that I do when I'm out there actually hunting in the fall. And as you know, the temperatures can be in the thirties or forties during September. Um, you know, if I'm wearing that call on the outside of my body out in the open air, that call can get, you know, very cold. It gets the same temperature as the outside air. And then when I go to blow it and I'm putting, you know, whatever my 98 degree breath on it, the first thing it's going to do is condensate and start sticking very quick. So what I do to avoid that scenario is I like to carry the calls under layers of clothing and keep them close to my body. You know, not, I usually don't put them directly on my skin, but I'll put them under a layer or two to keep them up to temperature because I feel like not only do they sound better because the reed is warmer and it's easier to get it to vibrate when it's warm and it, and it, it sounds sweeter, but also when it's more up to temperature of your breath, it's more likely that it's going to take it a lot longer to condensate and you know get that, get that moisture under it and start sticking on you. That's a great tip. Another great tip. Um, you touched a little bit on being in within that 100, 150-yard range. Is that um within that scope how far do you want or how close do you want your clients to feel comfortable when they're making their when they're making their archery shots 
Yeah, I would say on average, most of our archery shots are 20 to 35 yards. I, I, I don't want to call the bull head on and, and right into the face of the hunter because usually that, you know, it's not, doesn't uh, offer good shot angles and it makes it hard for him to get his bow drawn back. If that bull is say 15 yards or closer, the guy just has a harder time not being detected. So if I can, I want to put that bull, if, my ideal would be in that 20 to 30 yard range and to where he's walking broadside by that hunter on the upwind side of the hunter. So he's not going to get the hunter scent. And I tell my hunters, I think this would be even hard for me if I was that hunter and I've heard that bull coming in bugling and glunking, doing all those sounds those big bulls make during the rut. It would get me really keyed up. So I think the hardest thing for a hunter or for me would be to blow a sweet cow call with a mouth diaphragm when you're all keyed up and got the adrenaline flowing. So I tell them, you know, better than trying to blow a cow call with a mouth read when you're in that scenario, you really can just make a deer grunt with your voice. You know, right. just a, eh, eh. it stops them every time. It doesn't spook them. I tell you what spooks them is a sour sounding cow call. When, they, <laughs> when they've been coming into a call that they're hearing from a certain location, then all of a sudden someone blows a call off to the side of them and it doesn't sound as good or it's nervous or whatnot, that can really set them on edge um, more so than just a, you know, kind of a mild deer grunt. And then you've got your standing broadside shot right there and no need to rush. They'll sit there and just look and you've got time to, you know, really aim and make a fine shot on them. Another great tidbit. I think uh, everybody is gaining a lot of knowledge. Like Mike said earlier that, I know with your experience, you are, you're shedding a lot of light on a lot of uh, tidbits that only come with experience. So keep them coming. We appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Trial and error, making a lot of mistakes, to be honest with you. <laughs> some of the best lessons learned are the hardest, right? That's right. You, know, That's you exactly can't kill right. a monster um, on your first time out. I mean, if you're fortunate and lucky, great for you and, and kudos, but most of the uh, everybody's successful hunts and experience come from trial and error and either learning from other people or from going and going and going numerous years and, and not being successful or not capitalizing on the, on the big bull or the big buck that you're looking for. Um, with being able to go out and, and go in that terrain, a lot of Arizona is the Ponderosas or the Pinion Juniper. You have, you know, different rock formations and canyons and whatnot. What, what are some of the things that you do to, to stay in shape year round? Yeah. You know, that, that aspect, I'll be honest, gets tougher and tougher for me as the years go by, you know, I still feel like I can get out there and, you know, hunt and hang with the best of them. Um, but you know, it, it does, I can't do what I could do 20 years ago. Um, you know, and I have to be a little more careful about, you know, like I don't, uh, I don't do squats and deadlifts and things like that anymore for people who can do that. Fantastic. I mean, it makes you very strong. Uh, you know, your whole body gets worked out that way, but you know, I, I'm doing when I'm lifting weights, more isolation type exercises, more bodybuilding type exercises, if you will. So if I'm working my legs out, I'm using the leg extension machine, the let the seated leg curl machine. Um, you know, if I'm doing uh, my chest, I'm using dumbbells and doing flies and presses with dumbbells instead of trying to max out on bench press. I don't think I've maxed out on bench press since I was in high school, to be honest with you. 
I, I know that was the big lift. Everybody, you know, how much can you max on the bench? That was the big deal, you know. And were oh, you yeah. in the three hundred? Were you in the three hundred club up on the wall, you know, for pressing three hundred pounds? But yeah, that doesn't matter to me now. It's more about feel and uh, you know getting a good a good burn in the muscle and uh, you know training more for endurance. And and then of course uh, you know if I'm in the gym, I'll do the the treadmill or the elliptical, and I I just like to get at a good. Um, you know, fat burning, elk hunting type pace, you know, I'm not going to be frantic about it where I'm just, you know, running and pouring sweat, but just in that good fat burning zone. Um, and then I, I like to walk and take hikes with my wife. Um, that's, that's what I do often. It's, it's, it's very enjoyable experience to be out there with her and the, in the air and the creation and everything and, and just taking a nice hike. Um, but there's still always a little bit of break in when I get out there in the elk woods. I always say it's always a couple of days to kind of get my, my elk legs and elk feet back under, under me, just with the rocks. Like you were saying, I mean, the, the, the rockiness can really throw you with balance and such. And, um, yeah, that, that takes a little bit of break in every year. <laughs> yeah. Having your, that lower leg and your ankle support and, and yep. having good boots, but also just nothing in a gym can replicate what nature and what, uh, what God has put forward. You, you going out and, and going on unstable ground, you know, no matter how much treadmill or no, how much, no matter how much you throw it yourself on asphalt or, or running stairs or going on, um, any other type of exercise equipment, nothing can replicate being outside. That's why having family that enjoys the outdoors and going with you, like you said, your wife, um, kids when they're growing up and, and bringing them and yeah. allowing them to enjoy God's creation and, and seeing how beautiful it is. Um, sometimes nowadays it's hard to get kids to go outside. Uh, some of them are, are addicted to all the social media and tablets and whatnot, but it's important to get kids out there. And even if they're not interested in hunting, just being able to go out and go on a hike, get that fresh air and, and clear your mind. Um, but also yes. just, you know, spending quality time outdoors is important, but for us to get in shape for whatever hunt, I mean, if you're going in Southern Arizona for deer, you're, you're going to have to hike a lot of flights of stairs in order to, to get where some of these coos deer live. And if you're hunting <laughs> high country uh, bulls or in nasty terrain, like you said, in unit 27, um, you know, some of the people that are successful are the ones that are, are willing to go that extra mile and, uh, maybe tent camp up there or, and, you know, have a spike camp or whatnot, but you got to yeah. go where they're at, right? They're not going to come to you. Exactly. I, I'm always amazed every year and I'm reminded how physical of an animal they are. And when they're in flat country, it, it's even more magnified because of the fact that they can just, it's, it's like they just hover away from you sometimes, even when you're not calling, I'm just amazed you know, I always notice when that first gray light comes on a lot of times, how they'll shut down bugling, even if without me putting pressure on them or calling at them. It's just something that they've kind of learned to do over time or it's instinctual. And they'll just push into the wind. And, man, the next time you hear them bugle, they're clear at the end of your earshot, you know, of your hearing. Just amazing how physical they are. So, so yeah, you definitely want to be at the top of your game when you hit the woods for sure. Absolutely. I know Mike, he, you know, some of these people, it doesn't matter how much you work out. Mike is an animal. It's, you can see that primal instinct come out when it's hunting time. 
that I could have been, I could have been running and training and going to the gym and doing everything I can. And then when, when it's go time, Mike is leading the pack, no matter what, no matter how good a shape you're in. Cause he, the switch gets flipped and, uh, you know, most of us keep up with him, but he's always leading cause he, uh, like, like a lot of us, you know, that, that adrenaline, that need to go pursue that game, to get the eyes on it. Um, nothing matches that. So he, he inspires me to, to stay in better shape, but there's so many guys that, you know, are like that, that are willing to, you know, throw weight in their packs and, and go hiking around. And yeah, it, it makes it easier when you're, when you're carrying out that bunch of back straps and neck meat and a, a giant rack, or you're carrying out, you know, a hindquarter and whatnot, you'll, you'll appreciate all the work that you put in when uh when you're hiking up out of a canyon if you if you got one in a sticky situation yeah no doubt about it and you and on the other on the flip side you'll suffer if you didn't put in the time oh yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's definitely a a lesson that we've all learned uh even if you're on day five on a small game i mean if you're by yourself and doing diy and you gotta pack out whatever animal um you know Mm -hmm. Hopefully you brought some food and some and, and a lunch, so to say, and and some water for yourself because in Arizona you're you're going to need it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know the reality is all of us are at different ages, different points, different physical abilities. So I would just encourage people to you know hunt according to your abilities. You you know you're going to be your own best judge as far as that goes. Yeah, sure. Do your best to stay in the best shape you can be in but uh you know yeah like i was saying earlier i've come to realize i the first thing that left me was my vertical jump you know (laughs) when i was in high school i was really proud that you know how i could jump and everything and i tell you what i can't i've got a credit card vertical now um (laughs) it just went away from me and you know and 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 i'm looking forward and thinking man what's it going to be like in uh in 20 years am i still going to be able to do this and I can't hardly imagine life without being able to get out there and pursue elk like I do, but I know that time's going to come, you know, if the Lord gives me that many days. Um, but I, but I know for all of us, ultimately it's going to come where we're going to be limited in our abilities. And, um, you know, if I'm hunting with a client like that, I, I adapt and, you know, do what he can do and always hunt according to his abilities. And, um, it's, it's just part of life and the natural progression that we're all going to age. And, um, you know, one day we're going to, get to go to heaven and see the Lord face to face. And that's going to be the, the most amazing day of my life. <laughs> Absolutely. hundred um, percent. Like you said, we don't, uh, our experiences and our training make us make better choices too, because as we're all getting older, we don't heal as quick as we used to, but it's, yeah. it's a, it's a mental game too. Um, it clears your mind. It brings you closer to God when to me at least. And I know a lot of the other guys within CHA that, and, and hunters in general, even, you know, no matter what your belief structure is and no matter how much faith or, or whatnot, um, just being out there is, is better for your mental and physical well-being. Um, we all believe in God and everybody that we take out there on mentored hunts and everybody that we, you know, encourage to go out there, you know, we're, we're saying our prayers and we're thanking God and allowing us to enjoy his beautiful creation but it, there's something about that mental fortitude that when you're out there, um, it just, if you want to go and you're, you're mentally strong and you're mentally tough, you're going to do it. You know what I mean? You have that 
capability. Yeah. If you're in your 30s or 40s now, or if you're in your 40s and 50s, and, or even your 60s, we have George Richardson, who's a you know a patriarch here in Arizona on the Richardson family um, hunting dynamics, and we've had him here on before with Corky speaking about some of their previous hunts, and you know he's in his early 80s and and harvested a bighorn sheep, and I believe it was his late 70s or right at 80, and you know wow. if, if you can do it. You, you can do it. He finally got that tag and, and was able to go and he had help packing it out, but he was out there nonetheless. And that mental fortitude can carry you a long way and get you through some of those tough situations. Because if you want to be out there and your mind gives up and uh, then your body's going to follow, because if you can't put yourself in those situations mentally or, or whatnot, um, my belief and Mike's belief is that, you know, your body's not going to be able to take it. You're going to make all these excuses. You're going to give a reason yeah. why you can't get out there. But if you really want to do it, set your mind to it, train, and, uh, you know, you can tailor the hunt to meet certain physical needs or physical expectations. But one way or another, get out there and, and enjoy enjoy those outdoors. I know Mike has one last question before we wrap up. Yeah, you're right. It's good for the soul. I couldn't agree with that more, what you just said, Chet. And yeah, I listened to that episode with the Richardsons. That was a wonderful episode. And uh, their knowledge of those uh, bison is amazing to me. I was just so impressed with how much they knew about them. So yeah, anyway, go ahead, Mike. All right. Well, I think you kind of hit everything. And um, my last question was kind of just talking about your faith. I think you kind of hit that. Then the the fellowship of of what that means to you uh, as a outfitter and as a client but through that um known as an outfitter and basically having to be be prepared and have alternative plans of a b c d or whatever it may be because people are you know they're paying you to be the outfitter and being knowledgeable as an outfitter and as an elk hunter what is the importance of having different options if if you go to a spot and there's a bunch of people there or let's say they're not big on this one section what is it that you look for in having different options that our listeners can basically have, can kind of form some of those same ideas instead of putting all of their effort in maybe into one or two, you know, this is all I'm going to do. Then all of a sudden by day two or day three, you know, they're like, what do I do now? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. Um, you know, I'm a person who honestly, if I'm hunting a certain unit, I can be hunting, 20 miles away from where I was the day, the day prior. And I think that just comes from, you know, learning the unit, doing, doing map study. Uh, you can do a lot at home actually now with all the technology, but then getting out there in the field, learning the road systems is going to be a big part in your confidence when you get out there in the field, you know, kind of knowing what the roads are like, which ones are terrible, which ones are doable. Um, you know, obviously getting comfortable with your mapping program. I, I really love flatline in Arizona. I don't think you can do better than flatline maps in Arizona. And I've got that loaded on my phone as well. And it's just a phenomenal tool for me. Um, but yeah, I'm that guy that um, looks to go where they're bugling and wants to hunt bugling elk. So even if I have a bull in a particular area that I want to hunt, if he's not bugling on that particular morning, I'm not just going to take the, the client on a nature hike and, uh, you know, waste that morning. I'm going to stay uh, mobile and keep my options open and, and move and look to get on bugling elk. Sometimes that even means, you know, going out after dinner, uh, you know, when you're tired and ready to go to bed in the middle of the night and trying to find some bugling pockets and, uh, you know, marking those on your mapping. Um, 
but yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, keeping your options open with elk is, is a huge part of being successful and, and, and going where they're bugling, even on a morning hunt, you know, even if I commit myself to a general area, I won't necessarily say, okay, I'm going to go here and park in this spot and I'm going to hunt from here because if they're not bugling, I'm not going to commit to that spot. I'm going to, you know, in the dark, I'm going to use my vehicle to, uh, you know, get myself in position where I can hear bulls from earshot. And then I'm going to go from there is, is how I like to do it. So yeah, definitely keep my options open. I kind of have a, a funny story. I ran into a particular guy. We're pretty good friends, um, hunting way out on the West side in unit nine one morning. And we bumped into each other a couple of times and we kind of laughed and I jokingly said, well, where are you going to go tonight? So I know where to go. And, uh, he didn't really say, nor did I. And, uh, that evening we were hunting about 25 miles away and, and we ran into each other again. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) So I guess he was keeping his options open and being, being mobile as well. So I thought that was hilarious. And we just, just laughed about it. You know, what do you, what else are you going to do? Nothing. Great minds think alike is all you can sum it up to, right? Yeah. Maybe we should have just uh, rode together. We would have saved some gas. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Especially in unit nine. Exactly. Yeah. You got to cover exactly. some ground up there. We've, we've experienced that. Exactly. Um, well, we're wrapping it up. What, how can our listeners reach out to you if they want to, um, find out more about your guide service or, uh, your YouTube or, or whatnot, what are some of your websites and, uh, handles on social media in order for them to be able to, to get a hold of you? Yeah. Thank you for that. It's been great to be on with you guys. So to find us on sh- social media first, they can uh, find us on Instagram at elk camp TV. Um, if they're Facebook users, it would be at chapel guide service and elk camp TV. I believe <laughs> um, as far as on the web, they can, they can find us. And I've recently um, switched the name of my guide service to elk camp guide service. I just feel like it's a better match uh, for what's going on with the show and everything. So um, I'm, I'm kind of making that transition from chapel guide service to elk camp guide service. So they, they can type in elk camp or they can type in elk camp and it will get them to the same website. Um, the elk calls are on that website. They can also order them from Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. Um, they carry all my calls that they could go on to buglingbull.com. Um, as far as following the show, uh, they can catch it on Sportsman Channel on Monday nights, Arizona time. That would be uh, 5 p.m. Arizona time, uh, 6 p.m. Mountain time for people on Mountain Mountain time with, with not Arizona time. Um, if they're a dish customer, it would be channel 395. If they're direct TV, it's channel 605. Um, for people who don't, or who are cord cutters and don't have TV, um, they can watch, uh, full seasons of elk camp on myoutdoortv.com. Um, so they can log on to that, uh, very inexpensive subscription. Um, and then the YouTube channel, uh, would be, I think it's Steve Chapel Elk Camp. I'm pretty sure. I'm not able to load my most current stuff on there because of airing the show on Sportsman Channel. Of course, they get, uh, you know, first dibs at all the new content, but I think there's quite a bit of uh, content on, on YouTube as well. So, again, guys, thank you so much. It's been just wonderful to be on with you today. We can't thank you enough. I mean, Mike and I both learned a bunch. Mike's been hunting a lot longer than me, but I'm sure he's picked up some tidbits. Yes. Um, I know I have, and I, I guarantee you our listeners have. 
But as always, we always end all of our podcast into prayer. Mike, if you can close this podcast with Steve Chapel um, with a with a glorious prayer. All right, uh, Lord God in heaven, we just uh, we love you, Lord, and we are just uh, so so thankful, Lord, that you uh, put men in our lives, Lord, that uh, can form relationships that uh, we don't even realize it that are formed, Lord, and, and just this small incident of just uh, somebody that uh, I have come in contact with twenty years ago, just through maybe a shock and awe, and just the excitement of just the elk hunting that you created, Lord. Of we we fast forward twenty years, Lord, to be on a podcast that I had no idea what even what a podcast was, and probably most. People had no idea what it was even 10 years ago. It's something that's new and that, that the doors that you open through social media. And Lord, I just ask that you would just uh, bless all of our listeners, Lord, and and give them uh, the assurance, Lord, and hope that uh, that there is a Lord and a Savior that's out there, Lord. And, and your testament was uh, true uh, through the relationship, the personal relationship that uh, you have formed, that you have allowed to form as you knocked on the door. And, and Steve has definitely opened that door to have a personal relationship with you. And I just ask that you would... Allow our listeners, Lord, to have that same type of relationship that uh, that is glorified through Steve's testimony through this podcast. We know that we're here talking about elk hunting, and, and you have given us this, this incredible animal, Lord, that we love to hear bugling and chasing. And but we do know that in all things that we do, Lord, is for your glory. And we just ask that you would uh, bless Steve as he continues his guide service and builds his new relationships. That that he would be a, an example and as a seed, Lord, that would bring people to Christ to, to you. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, and we give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.